Pray with me this morning. Lord, as we think about feasts, and we have been feasting and thinking about feasting and enjoying feasting this morning, I pray that what you would set before us, the feast in your word, a feast um, to drink from the river of your delights that we were singing about a little while ago, that you would um, put a new appetite in us, Lord, when we move out of a holiday season. Um, Sometimes our physical appetites have become very controlling and dominant because of all the celebration and feasting, and that's a good and holy thing, all of that feasting. But Lord, I pray that you would just give us a reset on our appetites and that our appetite this morning would be for your spirit, for your presence to nourish us, to feed us, to challenge us, to grow us in the way that only your spirit can do. So I pray that you would make the gospel and the one who came and died for us big and real and awesome in our eyes through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you want to follow along in your reading or if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark 6. We're cruising right along. We're close ish to halfway through uh, the gospel of Mark. And I want to look at the story of uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 today. Now, how many of you enjoyed at least one feast over the holiday season? If you were here on December 16th for the Christmas service, you enjoyed a feast, right? You probably also enjoyed another feast with your family, maybe on Christmas Eve or Christmas. You probably enjoyed a feast on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. I know that I did all of those things and it was awesome. Um, But we're going to look at uh, the significance of a particular kind of feast in the Bible today. Now, it's Epiphany. That's our season. That's where we kind of find ourselves on the liturgical, the church's calendar. Advent is over. We had Christmas. We had 12 days of it. Hopefully you didn't take your tree down before January 6th, because if you did, you're not a real Christian. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, we are now in the season of Epiphany, which is about what? Who can tell me what the theme of Epiphany is? What's, what's it built on? The, the, the wise men, the magi who come to Jesus, but more broadly, it's talking about the mission, the revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles. Because those wise men were Gentiles. They were pagan astronomers. They, they had a sense that the, the prophecies of Israel were going to be fulfilled and that this man was worth worshiping. And so they went and found the baby. And this was the, the, the first clue in the Gospels that, that the gospel was not just going to be for Israel. It was going to be for all the world. So that's what the season is about. So it's a very a, a missional season. Epiphany is a very missional season, and I believe that the passage that we are going to look at today is actually a very missional uh, passage. And I know you hear us preach on mission a lot, but um, that's what the Bible is about. It's about God's mission in the world, and we're going to see a particular manifestation of that mission in uh, Mark chapter 6. So let me read the passage, and then we're going to look at a few things in it. It says this, starting in verse 32. So they, that is the disciples in Jesus, went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. 
When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Okay. In the scriptures, the scriptures of old, the Old Testament scriptures, there were a number of pro many, many prophecies about the Messiah, this Messiah king who was going to come and restore his people. But some of those prophecy involve, prophecies involve what we might call a messianic banquet. And that is that there's going to be this great feast, which is the symbol and sign that God's kingdom is reestablished and his people are restored. So everybody say messianic banquet. Messianic, messianic banquet. And uh, let me just give you an example of from one place in the Old Testament that we see this. And this is from Isaiah chapter 25 being spoken about 600 years before Christ was born. And Isaiah said, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines. He will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away the tears from all faces. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Okay, that's messianic banquet. That's imagery of a messianic banquet. God among his people, wiping their suffering away, feeding them. There's abundance, there's flourishing. Now, you all who, all of us who have been feasting over the holidays knows that, know that when you're feasting, there's joy. It feels like there's a sense of abundance. I know when I looked at the table after the Christmas service, I was like, whoa, there's so much to pick from. There's a sense of flourishing, right? And community and all those things. And all those things are a part of the messianic banquet. Now, when you go all the way towards the end of the Bible into Revelation and you see the vision of things to come, you see another banquet. It's called the Wedding Feast of the Lamb in Revelation. And it says that those who are invited to that feast are the ones who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the saints who have lived out their righteous deeds before the Lord, and they're invited to a feast. So the Bible also ends the story by saying that we're going to be feasting in his presence. It's a beautiful thing. But in the Gospel of Mark, somewhere in the middle of all that, we're going to get a glimpse and a picture of this messianic feast. And there's a deep and profound meaning in that for us today. And Mark had these messianic uh, ideas and pictures in his mind as he described what happened in this story. I want to... Um, look at, we're just going to kind of go right down to where Jesus takes the bread from them. And I'm going to kind of revisit some things that happened before that. So Jesus, they bring him this bread there. The disciples are like, there's no way this is possible. And Jesus is challenging them to think in a different way, okay, about who he is and what he can do. And so they bring him this little bit of bread and Jesus probably prayed a traditional uh, prayer that would be prayed by the Jewish head of the family at a table for supper. When I was in, uh, uh, on a field education, I was staying with a Hebrew professor uh, back in, up in Michigan when I was in seminary, and they taught us this prayer, and, it's, and it starts, Baruch Hatah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, and it goes on. Um, it's a beautiful prayer. Oh God, ruler of the universe, you are king forever, and all this. And Jesus probably prayed that prayer over the bread. 
And then the people, of course, are fed. And the language that Mark uses when he says that they were full, they were satisfied, is actually language that implies this is like a celebratory feast. This is not just like, oh, cool, some food, great, we can get through the rest of the day. He's describing this kind of joyful feast with Jesus at the center of it, who has made it possible. That's not a picture of the gospel. I don't know what is, right? We get to celebrate that every week, every day of our lives that we have been fed by the very bread of life. But I want to look at uh, what we might call a fourth, the fourfold action of Jesus in his uh, miraculous breaking of the bread. A fourfold action. This is actually a term I'm stealing from other people who have noticed this and, and uh, reflected on this before me. But the fourfold action is this. Take, bless, break, give. Everybody say that with me. Take, bless, break, give. So the first thing that Jesus does when his disciples bring him the bread is he takes the bread. And I want to look at this as sort of symbolic of what Jesus does for us in the gospel. The first thing that Jesus does for us, because there's a fourfold action from God upon the life of every Christian that we can see here as somewhat of an allegory here. The first thing that Jesus does is he takes. He takes us to himself. We don't earn that. We don't work our way into his loving arms. We don't do anything to impress him. To get that, Jesus takes us. He forgives us. He wipes away our sin. He shed his blood to do that, so he's the only one who can do us. He gives us friendship, his very own friendship. He gives us a new identity, and he reconciles us with our heavenly Father. That, that's like the heart of the gospel, right? That Jesus has taken you unto himself, even though you were an unworthy sinner, even though I was an unworthy sinner who could do nothing to earn God's favor. And this is something that we have to remember over and over again before we get to these other steps of the action is that Jesus has already taken me to himself. Paul said, one thing that I know is that I, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You are his treasured possession. He has made you his own. But there's a lot of, there's a big part of us that fights against that and wants to re-earn God's favor on a daily basis to make sure that he loves us and we can be secure. One, um, one writer said it like this, it is an item of faith that we are children of God. There is plenty of experience in us against it, right? Because our emotions, our daily situations, they want to pull that truth away from us that we've already been taken and made Jesus' own. But it stands true nonetheless. So the first thing Jesus does is that he takes us to himself. Now, Jesus, in a sense, he took this whole crowd of 5,000 people to himself. It tells us in chapter 34 that when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' ministry was not incentivized by him getting to see people follow more rules. It was incentivized by his compassion. He had compassion for the lost. And I think that the church today, we want notches on our belt of conversions or, or, or uh, butts in pews and plates and dollars, and we will have a notch in our belt kind of mentality, but the Lord wants to give us his heart for the lost. You know, something that I have been like so burdened with lately is, uh, is thinking about hell. Now you don't hear, we don't talk about it very much and we shouldn't emphasize it all the time. It's not the heart of scripture, but I've been reminded by the Lord that when you look out there at those people, they're all bearing my image in some distorted way, but they're bearing my image. I love them and most of them are heading to eternal separation and damnation. 
And they might have smiles on their faces and they're enjoying life and they think everything is okay. Like last night I'm outside doing something, turn the light off, and I hear the drunken college girl next door singing rock and roll songs outside and my heart was just broken. I just thought, Lord, save her and, and use me. But we need to develop that compassion for people. And compassion is the antidote to complacency and apathy in mission. Compassion is the antidote to complacency and apathy and mission for the lost, for the sick, for the poor. And we have got, we can only get that heart of compassion by being in the Father's presence and asking him for it. You can't work up compassion in your flesh. You have to ask God to break your heart for people who are perishing and who are going to be eternally separated from him if they do not turn their lives over to Jesus. And if you and I are afraid to lovingly share with someone who's bound up in a life of unbelief or sexual sin, whatever it is, if we're, if we're unwilling to share with them that without a change in repentance in their life, that they're going to perish eternally, we have lost compassion. One author that I was reading recently says it like this. He says, if we want to start being like Jesus, we need to stop being nice and start being kind. And true kindness will see a lost person and have a broken heart that says, I will at least share with them the opportunity for them to know that they can have a new life in Jesus Christ and escape eternal destruction. So God, give us that compassion as a church. Give it to us as individuals and give it to us corporately as a church. The second thing that Jesus does is he blesses. He blesses the bread, but he also blesses us. He speaks words over us. He prays over us. He, he, he says over us, my beloved. And then he pours out his spirit on us. He breathes on us and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. This is what I want to talk about for the bless action. Is there's, this is, where, this is where, we, we, where we come to know God personally, not just as an idea or not just as a lawgiver or a judge, but as a father who loves us. The Bible says that about the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say you're supposed to um, you know, say a vague prayer to him once in a while. I hope, pray that the Holy Spirit would help me. It says we are to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He's to be like a friend to us. That is how we will know the presence of Jesus with us and in us. But so many of us, we don't walk in that personal fire and that personal warmth and depth of relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, Richard Loveless says it like this. He says, the typical relationship between believers and the Holy Spirit in today's church is too often like that between the husband and a wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof, and the husband makes constant use of his wife's services, but he fails to communicate with her, recognize her presence, and celebrate their relationship with her. Ouch. <laughs> but it's true, because we can, we can easily forget that the Holy Spirit wants to relate to us on a daily basis. He's a comforter. He's a consoler. He's a helper. He wants us to talk to him right? We, can, it, we, we, we often forget that we can pray to the Holy Spirit. We can say, Holy Spirit, give me deeper friendship today with Jesus. Give me greater boldness. Give me greater purity. Help me to overcome this issue that my heart wants to be free of, but I keep finding myself indulging in. Holy Spirit, I call on you. He's quick and eager to come and to be with us and to walk with us in an enjoyable fellowship. That is the blessing that has been poured out over us. Number three is that Jesus breaks. Jesus breaks the bread. Now, I'm trying to, you know, I was trying to imagine this scene, and Jesus is just, all we get is what's happening kind of earth side, like what's happening, like 
practically. He's saying, you're going to do this. Go, go find some bread. Tell me how much you have and all that. But what must have been going on in the spirit must have been amazing. Jesus must have heard the Holy Spirit. Now, now he was human, remember. But, so Jesus must have been thinking like, hmm, this is, this is going to be interesting. But he had full trust that the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. And Jesus was fully empowered by the Spirit. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm guessing that he heard the Holy Spirit say, okay, now just, just break the bread. Just break it. Right? And he's in that situation where he's just obedient. It doesn't tell us if the Father gave him a vision of what he was going to do, but Jesus knew in that moment the Holy Spirit said, break the bread. And he was obedient, and he broke the bread. He didn't say, well, Holy Spirit, I realize the Father could do a miracle, but, you know, there is a lot of people. It's going to look really bad if, he, if this doesn't pan out and nothing really happens. He didn't think that. He didn't say that. He was just obedient. He broke the bread. He broke the bread. And we likewise have to become broken to have the heavenly mind that Jesus calls us to have. When he told his disciples, they said, look at the situation. Look at this earthly situation, Jesus. Don't you know that our, our minds, our rational minds, understand how to rightly process this situation and the solution to it? There's 5,000 people, there's 5,000 men with their women and children, and we have no money, really, and it's been a long day. You've been teaching, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty, and so the practical, obvious solution, Jesus, according to my reason, is that we send them into the town so they can get some food before Publix closes. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They were thinking with an earthly mind. And Jesus thinks with a heavenly mind. And Jesus thinks in terms always of heavenly solutions to situations that, that seem impossible. And I'm telling you, friends, God is always looking for a people and for a person who will believe that there's always a heavenly solution to every situation. He want, Jesus wants to say, look, I love, I've given you your earthly mind and it has certain uses, but when it comes to things that could only be miraculously done, only God's provision could be on this, only God's healing power could do something in this situation, I want to lift you up, believer, and I want to give you true faith so that you can see with the, my eyes that I see with from heaven. And so that you will thus believe and have faith to take hold of what is promised to you in my word about who I am and what I will do. And this is what he does. He's setting the disciples up to teach them something about them. It's not only about feeding the crowd, though that is coming from Jesus' compassion. It's also about a lesson for his disciples to learn to stop think being so earthly-minded and to think with a heavenly mind. Now, how many of you heard the phrase, well, don't get so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good? Have you ever heard that? It means, you know, don't get lost in spiritual navel-gazing or thinking about the clouds and the harps, and then you can't even do anything good on the earth. But Jesus, Jesus is going to blow up that lie right there that you, if you're too heavenly minded, you won't be of any earthly good. And he takes it and he breaks the bread. It's his heavenly solution. And that heavenly solution meets a basic earthly need. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, Jesus's motto is get more heavenly minded if you want to be of any earthly good. If you want to walk in power and fruitfulness as my disciple, be as heavenly-minded as you can possibly be. Because people who live in true contemplation in their prayer closet of the Lord, in true adoration and meditation upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, are going to be a people of action in the world. Because you have the Father's heart and you carry that with you. And it leads to a brokenness of spirit in us. Now, we modern-day Westerners, we are, we are so chained to a rational mindset 
when it comes to how we do life, an earthly way of thinking. And I'm convinced it's one of the reasons that the church today in America does not see very many miracles. Because we always want to come up with a programmatic solution for the issues that we face. Now, now if I asked you, how many of you want to see God do miracles in in our midst? I'm guessing like pretty much every hand would go up. Yeah, anybody not want to see God do miracles in our midst? (laughs) Every hand would go up. But how many of us can actually say that we're broken enough before the Lord to put ourselves in a place of risky faith and vulnerability so that he could actually do the miracle through us? Because Jesus said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. I'm going to feed them, but I'm going to do it through your hands and through your obedience. And they were obedient. That's all they were. They were just obedient. He said, go get me some bread and see how much you can get. And they're probably thinking, what's the point? And they just, but they did it, right? You don't have to feel a surge of positive emotion to obey the Lord. Just do what you sense he's calling you to do. Do what his word says to do, and he will provide. He will bring the miracle. He will bring the healing. He will bring the provision for that person in need. He will do it, but he needs an obedient heart. He needs an obedient heart. The last thing that Jesus does is he gives, he gives the bread. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it to the world. He gives it to the crowd. And we see this beautiful messianic banquet, which is a foretaste of the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, where we feast in his presence for all of eternity. Healed of every sickness, every tear dried from our eyes, standing in strong, glorified bodies, or maybe lounging in glorified, resurrected bodies, serving him, loving him, knowing him, and having fellowship with him forever. And this little miracle in the Gospels is just a little picture of a God who wants to save people, heal them, deliver them, feed them, and make sure that they have an abundant life and that they are whole. It's a picture of the gospel. Friends, Romans 12 says this, because this this breaking and giving, because what Jesus wants to do is he also, he he doesn't just take us to himself and bless us, he breaks us and he gives us to the world. We are his gift to the world. I've been memorizing Ephesians chapter 1 lately, and it says that, he, that God placed him as the authority over, that he made him head over the church, which is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church. Like God says that about his church. You are the fullness because you are, you're carrying out my son's spirit into the world. You are the fullness of him who uh, fills everything in every way. We are to fill the world with the aroma of Christ. So God also breaks us and gives us to the world. Romans 12 says, offer your bodies, your physical existence as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. And we must embrace a willingness to be broken and distributed for the sake of the world. All four of those things, being taken by Jesus and knowing our identity in him, knowing that we're loved and accepted, uh, being blessed by him, having his spirit poured out on us, being broken by him, and being given to the world by him. All four of those are openly manifest in the life of a genuine disciple who is alive in the spirit. Now, here's where I want to go with this before we close. You see that the altar is set today, and um, you're like, it's not the last Sunday of the month. Well, in this, as we go into the new year, we're going to have communion on a weekly basis now. You see, that, that's, that's, not only is that just the way that Anglicans do it traditionally, that, that was the way that it was done in the early church. When they gathered on Sundays, they partook of the Lord's body and blood. But here's what I want us to think about, not a church history lesson. 
I want us to remember who we are united to as we think about the call to be broken and poured out for the world. You are united to the Jesus who loves you and has compassion on you. And he himself, the one to whom you are united, he himself was taken up into the Father's purpose. He was blessed by the Spirit. He was broken when he was torn apart on the cross. And he was distributed and given for the life of the world. So he's not asking you, go and do that on your own and then report back to me. He's saying, in union with me, you'll be taken, you'll be blessed, you'll be broken, and you'll be given. And in that, you will find the abundant resurrection life. And the Eucharist, the Eucharist is a weekly reminder in our worship gathering that it's not only a, a, a reminder of his presence, but it's a way of encountering him feeding on him, entering into what the Bible calls the fellowship of his suffering, and being nourished and fed and strengthened to be sent out into the world. As it has often been said before, all mission, all of the church's mission flows from this table. The Bible says that is often whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. And I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to ever get to a place where we just see this as a ceremony or a ritual that we have to go to because it's what we do as Anglicans or, or even at what we do as Christians. I don't want it ever to become that. I want this sacrament, this outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual grace of the Lord's presence to be something that is always at the center of our worship because when we proclaim the Lord's death, we unite ourselves to him intimately and we are fed and we give him every time you come to this altar. This is why this has to be taken seriously. You are giving him your yes. You are saying, as I'm receiving this broken bread and this wine that, 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 that symbolizes your poured out blood, as I receive that into me, I'm saying, I am that. I will be broken with you. I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I want to enter in and share in your sufferings and be poured out for the sake of the world. Because friends, that is the way that you, we will experience revival and renewal in the power of the spirit working in and through us to multiply and to do everything that needs to be done in and through Adoration Church in this new year. Amen. This is the sacrament of encounter. Here's how I want us to see us going into the new year. Adoration 2023. Look around. We're a small loaf of bread. There's about, what, 30, 35 slices of us. <laughs> We're a small loaf of bread, and that's all Jesus needs. That's all Jesus needs. It's what all that Jesus needs to multiply, to bless, to break us, and to give us to the world. And he will do the multiplication. The book of Acts always says, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. But if we are broken and we are poured out for him, he will do that work. But friends, I want this to not be a motivational, speak, a motivational speech. I want it to be a call to consecration in the new year. This morning we had our prayer gathering and this is not a word of rebuke, but I just wanna speak this out because it's so convicting to me. The preacher uh, Leonard Ravenhill famously said, you know how popular the pastor is by how many people attend the Sunday morning gathering. You know how popular the church is by how many people gather on the Sunday night gathering, but you know how popular God is based on how many people attend the prayer meeting. <sighs> I'm saying that as like a challenge 
going into this new year at nine o'clock every Sunday we will be in this room praying we had a beautiful time praying this morning I want to encourage you to come even if you're not somebody who's like you wake up Sunday morning you're like I don't feel like I have anything to give and call out to God in prayer come and sit in the Lord's presence and just agree with those who are doing that around you because there's great treasure in that and when the Lord sees his people praying he stirs things up he stirs things up I want to close with a prayer that John Wesley uh, used to pray regularly um, to the Lord if our music team wants to come up and just begin to minister. I want you to just close your eyes and take a, take a posture, whatever that looks like for you, of, of devotion to the Lord. It might be that your palms are open um, in front of you. It may be that you want to kneel. It may be that you want to stand. It may be um, whatever you want it to be, but I want to pray this over us. I'm going to pray it slowly that so you can kind of just drink it in, that we can drink it in our spirit. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. I invite you to stand. One of the things that's carried the church through the ages to remember who we are and to stay, to keep the main thing, the main thing, as some might say, are the beautiful creeds of the church. We're going to confess together the beautiful truths of the gospel and the words of the Nicene Creed this morning. It's right there on page three in your booklet. Make this a devotion of your heart this morning. Make it a devotion of your heart that you pray throughout the week. And together we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.